This headline caught uh, producer Ben Dooley and my attention the other day. Lighthouse Labs survey finds more than half of Canadians would reskill into a new career if given the opportunity. So we decided let's let's learn some more about this. And we're delighted to have Jeremy Shackey join us. Mr. Shackey is the CEO and the co-founder of Lighthouse Labs, the group that commissioned the survey. Jeremy Shackey, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us, Jeremy, and I know you were on one of the other shows uh, earlier in the week about this topic, and I heard about it, but I didn't have an opportunity to hear you, and neither did most of the people listening to us right now. So we appreciate your your willingness and patience to go through this one more time. But first, if you would, Jeremy, please tell us a little bit about your company, Lighthouse Labs. Sure. Lighthouse Labs is uh, born to train people um, in efficient ways, so 12-week programs, very intensive programs in software and data science. And our true calling is that we are outcomes-oriented. And so we look at making sure that every person graduating gets a job from our program. Uh, We have a 96% placement rate within 180 days uh, out Mm. of our programs. And uh, we've been working extremely hard to help people enter relevant topics and relevant careers um, beyond the university timeframe, so 23 to 32-year-olds. Interesting. And so this would be the group that you, of course, are hands on with all of these people going through your training program. So you would be closest to these people in terms of understanding why they're going through these retraining programs. So I guess you wouldn't have been at all surprised by the survey findings then, Jeremy. I can't say I was surprised. Um, it was it definitely proved out what we were seeing. And what we were seeing was substantial amount of applications coming in from people who in the past had been a little bit more hesitant or a little bit more cautious with their career. And I think as COVID kind of got going and ramped up for everybody, I think people just took a look at what they were doing for jobs um, and decided that there's something more to it than what they're currently doing. I think a lot of people have exercised caution over their life and uh, making, making a substantial change takes a lot of guts. It's not easy. Um, And in the past, there haven't been these kind of education institutions that can help people of that age, of that level, um, move as quickly as we can. Now more and more schools are popping up like this. What uh, what factor, how big a factor, Jeremy, do you think the whole working from home phenomenon has been in terms of uh, coming up with the numbers of willing younger workers uh, to move on and, and uh, enhance their skills and, and just take a run at new and different things? Well, I'd like to say that the, I can't tell you which one's bigger. I can tell you it's a huge factor amongst three or four others. And I think that the first, as you're saying, I think there's a massive, massive element of working at home, having a different type of lifestyle, living yeah. in different places, um, and being able to own your time a little bit differently. I had a caller on the last time I was on the show uh, ask about, you know, if people are actually as productive at home. I think all the data is coming out that people are actually more productive at home. Um, so on, on that note, I think it does play a really big part. I also think that the technology industry and the Canadian economy are both like the well, tech industry has been going great throughout all of COVID and Canada, Vancouver. I mean, BC has some of the best growing tech companies in the world right now. Sure. Um, right. you have some amazing groups, but then the Canadian economy is really going through recovery right now. And as you're saying, a lot of people are being called back to work. And I think there's a lot of people who don't want to be doing it. 
Interesting. And yet, you know, uh, it's interesting you're talking about the, the data showing that productivity is uh, equally accomplishable from a working at home environment. And yet, Jeremy, you know, because you're a CEO of a company, a lot of your peers at the executive level, particularly the senior executive level, aren't in the least bit convinced that productivity uh, is been enhanced by working at home. And they're very much looking forward to at least a partial return to the work environment. Uh, do you see a hybrid solution as being the most likely compromise that will work for everyone? I, you know, I think I, I think the hybrid solution is going to be something that's more prominent. I think there's going to be all types of work situations, and truthfully, there are employees who probably do want—I'm not probably for sure—want to be back in the workplace, seeing the people they like working with. There'll be companies sure. that appeal to them. There's going to be the hybrid element where you know that's what Lighthouse Labs is going to be doing in our future, allowing people to show up at an office anytime they want if they want to, but being online first and remote first. And then there's right. going to be no office whatsoever and purely remote. And I think that really what we're getting to is a lot more flexibility for employees in general and a lot more options of how you want to pursue your career. And I really think that that's the core of it. And I have this little joke with a few other CEOs that I've talked with that I think CEOs, their leadership, everything that they've built their, their leadership style on is the charisma that really only translates really well in person. And I think they mm -hmm. want people to listen to them in an office more than employees want to be in an office listening to them. That's what I think is oh. happening. Well, of course, and there's, 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 and of course, they have earned, I suppose, that uh, that right to uh, want to be seen and to be heard Absolutely. by uh, by those who work for them. You can, you can, I guess, understand that. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the workplace and this survey specifically, uh, because uh, I suppose the the it's it's we're looking now, Jeremy, across the spectrum, uh, and it's not just the hospitality sector anymore. We're having staffing issues, serious staffing issues. Lots of companies yeah. have jobs we talked to a restaurant guy on the show a week or so ago and he owns six restaurants and he said sterling right now this morning i've got 80 jobs waiting to be filled and nobody yeah. there's no lineup so and it's not just the hospitality industry so jeremy as staffing becomes more of an issue that would be i think changing the game to where the employee has more power than the employer that's a different dynamic too isn't it I mean, it is, and it goes back to the days of unions, and it goes, it goes into a lot of different places where employees do or don't have power. I do think that employees in general are considering they can work just about anywhere in the world right now. Yep. They do have the choice that's quite different, and I think employers have to reconcile that a little bit. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I think we have to do something to fill up those jobs in restaurants. I think they're vital yep. jobs. I think they're very important, and those restaurateurs are part of our economy, are a major part of our economy. Um, so we do have to solve that. Uh, but I do think that there's this big change going over, and you see it in underrepresentation as well, and the diversity and inclusion growth that's going on. I think people are just getting to the point where they feel much, much more empowered to mm -hmm. ask for the respect they want, ask for the salaries they want, push for the way they want to be treated, and if not, go find another place to get that. And I think that's a very hard thing for employers to manage and, and walk through. Joining us uh, from Vancouver is Jeremy Shackey, the CEO and founder of Lighthouse Labs. And they've uh, published a survey recently talking about younger Canadian workers. And let me just quote from this, uh, from, your, from your own survey, Jeremy. When asked if they would change careers, 
Given the opportunity, 57% of Canadians reported they would take the leap, with self-identified members of marginalized groups like women and racialized people being most likely to make the change. And those working part-time are more likely to reskill than those working full-time. Those are just some of the findings from this recent workplace survey. Jeremy, talk to us about those findings. Yeah, I mean, I think they, I think they make a lot of sense. I think if you are marginalized or you're underrepresented and you're, you miss the opportunity early in your career to, or in your school to get the proper education to enter a certain field of work, you often end up in spaces that you weren't meant to be in or you didn't want to be in. And you kind of got to find the opportunities to reskill and move into careers that now that you've had a little bit more experience now. There's opportunity to move and change, and I think that that speaks for itself. I think people are really seeking that. And then, of course, people, we have a big underemployment problem. Even when we talk about graduates from college and how they're doing, how successful they've been, unfortunately, mm-hmm. way too many of the job types are including underemployment. And underemployment is a real problem in Canada and the United States. People are working part-time. They can't make ends meet. And they're looking for careers and jobs that maybe turn that around for them a little bit. And so not a surprise. I mean, some of the other surveys found how hard it is for people to think about doing this. And they Mm -hmm. want to do it. But will they do it? Right? And I think what COVID really did is it gave a lot of people that shove that they've been sitting on for a while. Indeed. And now we were talking about staffing problems across several sectors of the economy to the to the extent now, Jeremy, where we're starting to see employee enticements, you know, not only jobs being posted, but jobs, including signing bonuses and various other enticements to get people excited about taking a run at these. Are we likely to see more of that? I think the next six months to a year will be very will be very heavy in how employers are trying to attract talent. I think everyone is becoming aware that this next six months to a year, there's a lot of movement. They're calling it the great resignation. That's there's right. a lot of talent going back and forth. Um, I wonder what's going to happen after this year. I wonder what's going to happen for all the contract workers and people who are taking more flexible jobs and how they're going to feel about their rights and how they're going to feel about their access to benefits. But to your point, there's a lot of stuff being offered now that wasn't before. Even at Lighthouse Labs, we have learning funds, which we offer dollars for people to be able to learn and develop their skill sets. You know, great benefits. You have unlimited sick days. You have a lot of things that probably just weren't the case beforehand. And and I'm looking at the headline from a few days ago in the Globe and Mail. Gen Z and millennials playing a significant part in the great resignation trend. And that was uh, one of the first times that I had seen this phrase, the great resignation. But really, all that talks about, Jeremy, is is perhaps an, an escalated willingness on the part of younger workers, particularly, to resign and move on. A hundred percent. But I I would say to a lot of your listeners, and I think this is probably one of the most important subtle parts of the conversation is I think a lot of people are leaving jobs and making lateral moves and moving to just another company to do the same thing. You know, that one, we're seeing a lot of that and a lot of, oh, the salary is a little bit better. And Mm -hmm. I've been unhappy during COVID. My mental health hasn't been good. So I'm going to make a move. I don't know how much that's solving for people. And I think that's the one that probably comes down the fastest. I will say the people who are making changes and really making changes and going into reskilling or upskilling or adjusting their career trajectory, I think those are the people who are making uh, significant changes to their lives and will probably walk out of all this being happier. 
Indeed. And we're going to talk a little later on. We've got a, a, a lot of focus on the future of work on the program today, just quite coincidentally. We're going to Fantastic. Ryerson in Toronto to talk to some folks about the future of the grocery and retail food industry. And also we're going to talk later about the move, this exodus from the cities, Jeremy, that has been so obvious over the last, uh, what, 15 months of COVID. Large numbers, not, not huge, but large, significant numbers of Canadians, especially the work-from-home crowd, have actually picked up and moved out of the crowded downtown urbans in, uh, and areas and moved into more spacious rural accommodation. Is that trend, uh, again, with the working from home contingent attached to it, is that likely to stay? Um, I mean, as long as Vancouver housing prices stay where they are, <laughs> I imagine people are going to keep moving. I, I think, well, that's right. I think They're not, not much cities, help, housing prices, are they? No. I mean, you look at Vancouver, you look at Toronto, you look at cities across Canada. Canada is, is not the United States. You know, we, we should be a little bit more accessible to our housing and our markets. But unfortunately, our houses are really expensive. And yeah, I think especially in British Columbia, where the outdoors is so valued and you have such a, there's such a beautiful territory all around. Um, mm. I think I think there's a massive appeal to going to these smaller communities and going and working somewhere completely different. And I think that really smart mid-sized companies are going to take advantage of that and try and hire those people who have less of a cost of living, who have more flexibility, who seem to be happier because they're living away from the grind of the city. I can sure. see that being a trend that really does continue. Interesting. And of course, from a corporate point of view, uh, you're reducing the need for expensive office space and that sort of thing. You can. I've already had uh, office managers uh, type saying, you know, we, we going forward, we're going to get the people back to work, but we're not going to get them all back and we're not going to need all this room. So there's going to be a lot of economizing of physical plants as well. Uh, Jeremy, final question to you. Again, the willingness to move on, to change careers, to try something new, uh, uh, perhaps a an unprecedented level in a long time of young young workers lined up and ready to take the ch- the plunge is it is is uh, money has to be a motivator because obviously it's part of the of the package but what's the primary motivator i'm looking at some of the survey results and and yes they say oh, some of the workers are saying that i would want i would need 10 to 20,000 more uh, a year uh, at the end of it all to justify my my move and my reskilling but uh, what's the other motivator besides a uh, better bucks i think the primary motivator is we as a generation have been taught that we can have it all. I think that's something that's going on underneath everything and people are really sad and upset and frustrated when they don't have it all. And so I think you're seeing a lot of people just take a little bit more command of their roles and their responsibilities and their jobs and asking themselves, what do I want to do next? I don't have to do the same thing for 20, 30 years. And I'm realizing that I should be a little bit more confident in making some more significant changes. And I really think underneath everything, that's really what's going on is people just realizing they've not stuck on one linear path that they decided when they were 22 and now that's just the path that they're going to be on when my kids were in high school in the uh, in the 80s and 90s they were taught to jeremy to expect probably four or five or even six completely different careers during their working lives much different preparation process than their parents were and so now we're just seeing some of that teaching coming to fruition aren't we I think we are, and I think the most important difference was we were all, I, I, I was explained that while I was growing up in school, but I think the missing component was how do you make the switch? Where's the training? Where, mm-hmm. If you have to make a switch and you have to start back at $30,000 a year, 
well, that's not a very enticing switch. So how does how do you make a switch as you're an adult and actually maintain your salary levels and maintain your growth trajectory? And I think and that remains really the, that's that right. And there it is, Jeremy. Thank you for this. Great, I appreciate it very much. Getting up early on a Sunday morning when you really didn't have to. Absolutely fascinating conversation, and we're very grateful for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. I got a two-year-old, and she was up anyway, so this is this has been fantastic. <laughs> thank you so much, sir. Well, have a great day with that, with that lovely little girl, too, Jeremy. Thanks All for right. this. Jeremy Shackey, co-founder co and CEO of Lighthouse Labs. There's a new report out uh, talking about the pandemic and how it has affected Canada's retail billion-dollar food retail sector. Okay, $95.5 billion food retail sector. The changes caused by COVID, uh, the impact on our retail food sector, uh, accelerating tech adoption, prompting shifts in customer behavior. COVID has also put a spotlight on aspects of food retail that many shoppers may have previously taken for granted. Empty store shelves have prompted a newfound appreciation for those people, those everyday heroes, who have kept our local grocery stores stocked and operating. This is all part of a new report entitled Shake Up in Aisle 21, Disruption, Change, and Opportunity in Ontario's Grocery Sector. It's from the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. And from that group, it is a pleasure to welcome back uh, Senior Projects Manager Kimberly Bowman to talk about this uh, study on the grocery food retail sector across Canada. Kimberly, good morning and welcome back. It's great to have you back with us. Good morning, Sterling. It's really nice to be back. Well, it's good to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the impact. Let's talk a little bit about $95.5 billion a year. That number is pretty stunning, and I don't know that many Canadians appreciate the fact that that's how much money we blow on food and the grocery food retail sector every year. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a really big number. I mean, it's about it's about ten thousand three hundred dollars per Canadian per year on food, and and we look at you know when we look at pre pandemic, about you know, almost seventy five percent of that went into grocery stores. So we mm. forget just how big this sector is, how important and uh, food is, and and what a chunk of of our our pay it it covers. Uh, I think we're also you know there are a lot of different brands in Canada. Um, and what we sometimes don't recognize as consumers is that it's a very consolidated industry. There are reasonably few large companies that often have a number of different store brands that we're buying right. from. So it's right, really, right. really big, uh, and um, there are reasonably few actors in in our you know our major national chains. Yeah, like a, a big company like Loblaws, for example, will have its neighborhood supermarkets. It has the national chain, the real Canadian superstore. It has its no-frills, cheapo, cheapo. So it has all of these different brand names, but in fact, it's only one company that all of those brands are attached to. So how many, it's like broadcasting in, in Canada. Basically, five or six companies control all the, the, the outlets in the, in the country. How many kind of companies are there, Kimberly, that, that have that kind of control over basically the entire, entire grocery retail sector? Yeah, well, it's, it's, not, it's not quite that, that uh, centralized, but it is, it is pretty significant. So we're looking at about more than 60% controlled by or of, of spending going to five companies. So you've got Loblaw, right. Empire, mm -hmm. Metro, Costco, and Walmart. Those are, those are the big ones. 
Okay. Now, it's interesting. I was going to ask you about this a little later in the conversation, but there's a, a, a story has come out recently uh, basically talking about uh, the government body setting a deadline now for something called a grocery code of conduct. Uh, this is agriculture ministers across the country have uh, proposed, have given grocers uh, until the end of the year to uh, propose measures to regulate the industry. What are they talking about, Kim? Again, this is something consumers don't know a great deal about. What do they mean by a grocery code of conduct? Oh, that's a great question. And to tell you the truth, Sterling, I'm not totally up to speed on on what that plan is, so I don't want to speak to it in great detail. I can tell you that it is not uncommon for the food retail sector, the grocery sector, um, in countries like Canada. So we've seen this in the UK. We've seen this in, in Australia to have a considerable amount of power that um, may give them, you know, sometimes people say too much power over their suppliers, uh, over, uh, you know, the prices and the effect on consumers and over labor, the people that they work for. So I'm, I'm not clear exactly what the agenda is in Canada. I can tell you in other countries, this has been an issue that's been addressed through regulation and it, it often boils down to, you know, too many entities with too much power that, that makes it, um, you know, not a healthy market for either suppliers, for workers, or for consumers. So uh, I would expect it's, it's a you know a problem that's been diagnosed in in one of those areas. Indeed. Okay. So that and and again, this is something that that actually does affect the consumer because the prices that we pay at these various supermarkets are set by negotiations between the buyers for the supermarket chains and the and the well, in, in the case of fruits and vegetables, farmers and other distribution points, right? Certainly. So there, there has been in the news in the last year um, coverage of of you know some of the behavior of the big actors um, who are starting to introduce new conditions or new fees that aren't seen as fair by their right. suppliers or by small suppliers. So you know that affects the suppliers. It also affects the consumers. Um, our our concern in in our particular concern in this project was around um, the reality of work in food retail because you know you have so many tens of thousands of Canadians working in that sector. We sure do. And let's talk a bit, a little bit about that, because the one thing that we have, as, as I mentioned just in the opening remarks, one thing that consumers have come to appreciate over the past year and a half is the importance that the grocery and food retail sector plays in our economy, and particularly those who work in that sector, who were deemed essential on day one and who remain to this minute as essential as they were back on day one. Our appreciation of the industry, our knowledge of it perhaps hasn't expanded very much, Kimberly, but I think it's pretty safe to say the average Canadian has a much deeper appreciation of the grocery industry and the people who work in it. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, certainly, that's been my experience. I think we we don't think, but prior to the pandemic, we didn't think about the grocery store. We went to the grocery store a lot. We did a lot right. of micro trips, little frequent trips. But I don't, you know, aside from enjoying the interaction we might have with the cashier, it's it's not mm-hmm. something you think about um, until suddenly, you know, it's it's a real matter of risk and health, and you realize that the people who are serving you um, behind the plexiglass are are making you know, often less than $15 an hour and potentially putting themselves at risk in order to provide that essential service. So I think we are thinking about it differently than we were 18 months ago, for sure. Yep. 
and the reason, one of the reasons that I, I would agree with you on that, Kimberly, is because some of the grocery chains, at least here in BC, had added on some kind of pandemic premium to their workers, a couple of bucks more an hour, just again, recognizing the fact that these people were uh, exposing themselves and potentially their families uh, to risky environments and so on. And so let's make sure that we show some degree of appreciation. And so they got a bit of a pandemic pay raise. And then, uh, and it's not over yet, we're not out of the woods, well, many of us have got our shots, but we're definitely not out and done, and yet some of these uh, grocery stores have uh, eliminated already that pandemic premium uh, tap-up or top-up, and that, uh, for, from a consumer point of view, that actually did ripple very negatively. Uh, computer, consumers here went, come on, what are you thinking? Come on. Yeah, it was definitely very controversial. It's something that a lot of people picked up on and, and uh, a lot of folks remarked on as, as seeming very unfair. I think, you know, when we spoke to food food workers, we, we spoke to um, a couple hundred people out here in Ontario. And, you know, their experience of that pay bump was, was, um, wasn't was universal or uniform. Uh, there was True. a lot of confusion over what it was and how it was paid or when it was paid and who was entitled to what. So it, I think it, it certainly was a... Um, it was probably something that could have been rolled out a lot better in terms of, of PR. What are you finding about uh, the, the workers in the food and uh, grocery business, Kimberly, as you talk to hundreds and hundreds of them across your province of Ontario, where the most Canadians live? Uh, the, the, the future of the industry is changing dramatically, and so are careers within the industry. We just had a chat with a, a fellow here in Vancouver who has done a survey saying 57% of younger Canadian workers would happily change careers and reskill and move on, given the right set of circumstances. Are you finding that same willingness to take on new challenges or move away from the industry up to, uh, amongst the workers you're talking to these days? Yeah, absolutely. So we started this project. It was planned before the pandemic, actually, because we were mm-hmm. curious about the rise of um, technology that could disrupt uh, grocery that might decrease the number of jobs. So if you've got say, um, e-commerce or you've got self-checkouts, um, is that going to decrease the demand, the number of jobs available for people, you know, working as cashiers? Um, so we were curious about that. And then certainly the pandemic uh, came along and, and there was no decline in demand for grocery workers. In fact, you know, we saw a lot of hiring. Um, right. What we did find, we didn't ex- we didn't know about or expect until we started asking was that, you know, food retail is an industry that has a huge amount of turnover already. Certainly we mm-hmm. were hearing um, 30% annual turnover in jobs is, is normal um, and has a huge diversity of people working in it. So you've got young people, older people, newcomers, people who've lived in Canada their whole life. You know, these aren't just sort of student jobs that you do on the side. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we, we learned that, you know, even before the pandemic, there were a lot of people moving in and out of the sector. Sometimes they told us through frustration at the low wages um, or uh, low number of hours. You know, if you're getting paid a relatively low wage and then you can't get enough hours, it's hard to make rent on with one job. So uh, certainly there were a lot of people moving in and out before the pandemic. And, right. you know, more than half of the folks that we surveyed told us, yes, they were looking at being employed in a different occupation in the next couple of years. Indeed. So, uh, uh, but how many people, uh, uh, or even a small percentage of people, saying, "No, you know, this is this is my this is my career. This is I like this field, and I plan to advance myself through this field over the years ahead. I'm sticking with this." Do you hear that from many workers? 
Oh, certainly. I mean, so many people love the job. The elements that we heard people talked about, they love talking to people, interacting with people. I, I have this very vivid memory of hearing from a, 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 someone who told us about how happy he had been that week to help somebody find the perfect salad ingredients. Like there's a giant wall of lettuce in front of you. And how do you make sense of what tastes like what? He said, when I can help someone find exactly what they need for their meal, I feel really proud. You know, people, these are these are low-paid jobs. They are not low-skilled jobs. And people right. have extreme pride in being able to do them well, whether that's taking care of us in a store during a pandemic or whether that's performing their job to the best of their ability. So certainly um, we heard a lot of people who love the jobs or elements of the jobs. We heard from people who, you know, were often in unionized jobs and might have been in there for 15 or 20 years and certainly mm-hmm. enjoy a different set of, of work conditions is, you know, through their, their collective bargaining and their collective agreement. Um, I think the challenge that we found was that, you know, to a certain point, there are there's only so many places you can advance to. So certainly if you're in a unionized environment, you have the ability to build your pay and, and gain seniority. Um, right. In other environments, that's less clear or a little bit more tenuous. And um, it is, you know, there are only so many jobs at headquarters. We could not find clear um, clear paths between uh, store-level work and headquarters or multi-store work, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sort of above store management. That was one of our findings and one of our thoughts for, for companies was that, you know, we're seeing Canadian companies who are so sophisticated on e-commerce and on data management, but who really aren't paying attention to talent. And if they have people who want to stay in the industry, develop and contribute, they could do a lot better job um, sort of intentionally creating those development opportunities for their employees. Kimberly Bowman joining me from Burlington, Ontario. Ms. Bowman is the Senior Projects Manager with the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University in Toronto, and they have a report out on the future of the food sector, the retail grocery sector. The specifically, uh, the report specifically addresses Ontario's grocery sector. It's shake up in aisle 21, disruption, change, and opportunity in Ontario's grocery sector. And Kimberly, uh, the report talks about four different drivers that are, are, are making, the, that are really moving the retail food industry these days in Canada. They are the accelerated rise of e-commerce, driving loyalty with data, growth of market power plus consolidation, and moving beyond hyper-efficient supply chains. Item number two, driving loyalty with data. What does that mean? Well, I I think we we, earlier, Sterling, we had talked about how big uh, some of these companies in our food retail industry are. uh, And, uh, you know, we as Canadians love a deal, we love a bargain, and we love a loyalty program. So, you know, every time you go through the checkout and you use your points card, you're not just getting rewards, you're also giving data. Um, sure. And so there's a huge opportunity in food retail when you've got so many customers to be able to uh, understand purchasing behavior, uh, certainly to give us what we want in terms of offers on, on things we like to buy, but mm-hmm. also to draw out broader insights. And so you can use that um, to inform your own business strategy. Uh, you can also use it to, to create um, services that, that you provide to other businesses to help them leverage the, the lessons that you've, that you've gleaned from the huge stores of data that you've got on Canadian purchasing behavior. 
Interesting stuff. I use Air Miles, for example, and I get uh, the uh, the thing from Air Miles every week. You know, load your loyalty points, and gosh, if it isn't all the products I like to buy. So uh, talk about specific targeting. Uh, you mentioned something uh, sort of casually in our in our opening segment, Kimberly. I'd like to return mm-hmm. to you. You talked about self-checkouts, just in terms of another change, a very and not a new one either, by the way, in, in the grocery retail sector, but uh, just in terms of the changing dynamics of the workplace that is the grocery sector, if self-checkouts come along uh, more uh, uh, predominantly than they are now, does that mean fewer jobs for cashiers or do those people just find another task within the organization? So uh, possibly uh, it could be both. I think we, as as I said, we've we've struggled to find, or we didn't find evidence of a large disruption right now in food retail because you know, really, COVID has caused a lot of change very rapidly, and we've mm-hmm. got a lot of hiring for part-time jobs as a result. Sure. Um, it's really been, you know, it's probably been more than a decade since we started seeing self-checkouts installed in Canadian grocery stores. Yeah. We heard from uh, we heard from employers that, you know, they haven't been able to do that as much as they might otherwise because of practical things like store layout. You just might not have enough space. Mm-hmm. Um, True. We, so, you know, certainly we saw, we heard from workers anecdotally, people who, you know, talked to us during the pandemic who said, you know, self-checkouts came in one week and the following week there were fewer hours available to cashiers, um, to, you know, to work. But they also said, you know, those people were offered shifts and training opportunities, at, um, for example, at customer service. So what we're seeing is a phenomenon of cross-training amongst large employers. It's the big thing that they want is their, their uh, employees to be able to do a range of different things around the store, uh, right. be a cashier, help out on customer service. You know, this can be, you know, some workers told us this was a really um, negative dynamic for them. They didn't like it because it devalued, they felt it devalued their skills. You know, if they'd been mm. cutting fruit in a really nice way for a long time, uh, you know, suddenly if, if anybody does that, it's kind of messy. That That's, that's, kind of frustrating. But at the same time, it is an interesting dynamic that allows, you know, somebody who doesn't have enough hours as a cashier to potentially take on other um, other hours and other tasks in the store. So, you know, certainly I think they're both true. There's a chance that um, we might see, we think that, you know, if there is vulnerability to disruption or to decline uh, immediately, it it is amongst cashier roles, um, both through self-checkouts, but also through other forms of, you know, self-purchasing and Mm. e-commerce. But there's also a dynamic where we see people moving around. Okay. Uh, as far as the future of the of the sector, and it's an enormous sector, $95 billion a year we spend on groceries uh, across Canada. Uh, for a person considering a career in the, in the retail sector, and Lord knows there's lots of money out there, Kimberly, what advice would you pass along uh, just going in, besides keep your head on a swivel, the old hockey cliché? Ooh, so advice for somebody considering going into food retail? Exactly, yes. Oh, gosh. Uh, I would say talk to the people who work there. Uh, you know, as I said, we talked, to, we talked to dozens, we surveyed hundreds, and we learned a lot. Uh, I have never worked in a grocery store myself, worked in retail, worked in food, not in a grocery store. And my goodness, mm-hmm. uh, everyone is different. There are many different, you know, inside um, tips that you can get. I'd say the two that came up from workers that, you know, I would, I would pass on is, um, you know, know, know the rules of the game. That might be your collective agreement. That might be your job contract. That might be what you agree with your employer. So, right, you know, yeah. know what you're required to do and know what your rights are. 
um, we were told that this was really important. And, you know, there were great stories of people who maybe had a child and then had to go to their boss and say, I need I need more flexible hours so I can do daycare. And they were able to use the language to ask for that and get where they were asked, get what they were asking for. So really good news stories. If you know the rules and you know your rights and you can talk to your employer at that level. Mm. Uh, the okay. second was really no health and safety so that you can take care of yourself. You know, there's a, there's a lot of picking, a lot of moving. Ergonomics is important. Not getting hurt is really important. So workers told us that is, we specifically asked a number of them, what advice would okay. you give? And a couple of them came back, said, take care of yourself, know how to do it. Interesting stuff. The report, Shake Up at Aisle 21, Disruption, Change, and Opportunity in Ontario's Grocery Sector, is available at retailinsider.com. One of the authors, Kimberly Bowman from the Brookfield Institute at Ryerson University. Great to have you back with us, Kimberly. Thanks so much for doing it with us today. Thanks. Thank you, Sterling. Take care. And Mario Canseco joining us here on CKNW Weekend Mornings with a new poll about, well, COVID restrictions and Canadian sentiments. Mario, good morning. Welcome back. It's always good to have you with us. Good morning, Sterling. It's always great to be here with you. Well, I know it's, it's interesting. In our next segment, we're going to talk to the folks from the hospitality industry. We're going up to Fairmont Hot Springs to speak with Vivek Sharma, who's the chairman of the Tourism Association of BC, Mario. And it appears that the tourism and hospitality industry and the typical Vancouver or British Columbian aren't necessarily in sync this weekend because uh, I would find I, I, I sort of co-wrote a, a headline to your appearance. Average Canadian out of step with hospitality industry over COVID restrictions, Mario. The hospitality industry wants that border opened yesterday, and Canadians, typical residents here in BC, are much more conservative. Tell us more, please. Well, when we started asking Canadians about the border closures, uh, the level of support for keeping them closed after the federal government ordered it uh, was 90%. So definitely... A very high level of uh, support for what the government was doing. This month, it's 75%. So you have a little bit of a drop, but you still have three out of four Canadians uh, who believe that this is the right course of action. Uh, of course, there's a desperation in trying to get things done and essentially going back to life how it was back in 2019. Uh, but what I see from many Canadians right now is that uh, there's been a difference in the way this pandemic has been handled in the United States and in Canada. And yes. even though we see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we have for the first time 77% of Canadians who say that the worst of COVID is now behind us, uh, they don't want to look at this as a situation where you flip a switch. I think they want to have a more gradual uh, way of getting back into things. And this is why the level of support for opening the border is not as high as many people expected. And that's because it's either open or closed. There's no gradual, even though, Mario, they have established a sort of a gradual process, effective July 5th, Canadians returning who are fully vaccinated no longer have to quarantine. There was a, a, a slight lifting of a restriction, and, and it, it appears there might be more. I mean, the Blue Jays were given some kind of exemption to come back purely political uh anyway uh, as far as far as these as far as these lifting of restrictions it appears 
if it was, if we could present even a plan, see the hospitality is really upset, Mario, because there's no plan, zero plan. And so they just want some kind of roadmap, please, to reopening. So I think a lot more consumers would be on side too, if that roadmap included a a more gradual reopening. Were you able to ask in your findings, if the government was to gradually reopen the border, would you be more on side with that idea? Well, one of the things that has been consistent for the past few months is the concept of the vaccine passports. And I think what I see from Canadians in that sense is if we can have a system that allows us to track people who are coming in here the same way that we would track people going into a concert or going into a specific venue, um, this is something that is going to come in handy once sports uh, returns. Uh, We're looking at the CFL with that concept as well. So having the opportunity to track that is definitely going to be um, something that is more meaningful. So I think what we have here is a couple of things that don't really correlate to each other. Um, okay. The tourists from the United States that is more likely to be coming to Canada, trying to spend some money um, over here, um, tends to be the one who is already vaccinated. You know, we've mm. seen the vaccination rates uh, that are significantly lower in the southern states. Yes. And I just don't see a lot of people from Mississippi or from Texas driving all the way to the border. So mm-hmm. in that sense, uh, it has already taken care of itself in the fact that people who want to travel in the United States, people who have a passport, people who are interested in coming into Canada are more likely to have their two shots. Interesting. Now, uh, Mario, in terms of people surveyed, you were talking about the uh, reopening of the Canadian border to visitors from abroad. What about more uh, ability for Canadians to travel abroad? Did you ask about that? Uh, Because we are still restricted, uh, uh, officially at least, from the government of Canada from non-essential travel. Well, we have uh, seen uh, a high level of support, particularly when it comes to people coming back into the country. So if you're coming back into Canada, you have to go through the mandatory quarantine or isolation period. We have 71% of Canadians who believe that this should continue to happen. But again, this is lower than what we found uh, back in May when it was 79%. So we've seen a gradual drop in all of the things that we're tracking related to travel, whether it's intra-provincial travel, inter-provincial travel, the numbers are a little bit lower than they were a couple of months ago. Um, but it's, it's definitely a situation of Canadians looking into the end of the COVID-19 pandemic with a lot of caution. It's not as if everything is fine. And we've seen those vaccination rates climbing. The government is going to meet its actual promise of having everybody who wants to be vaccinated fully uh, by Thanksgiving. Um, but it's still not enough. I think in the next couple of weeks, in the next three weeks, as those vaccination rates continue to climb, we'll see those numbers a little bit lower. And that has been the case for the entire pandemic. You know, we look right. at the calendar and think this will be over in a couple of weeks. This will be over in about three months. Um, now we're getting closer to that stage, but it's not a scenario where everybody wants to flip the switch immediately. You're right. And I'm looking at uh, the Richmond Night Market is reopening this coming weekend on Friday. And uh, a lot of people excited about that. It's a very popular spot. So I'm on their Facebook page this morning, Mario, uh, because they're all, you know, they're really very keen to get going. And I'm just looking at some of the comments from people uh, acknowledging the opening of of the night market. And they're saying things like, you know, this is great. I missed it so much. And other people are saying masks should be mandatory of opening with so many people. Uh, No way I can social distance 
uh, uh, let the COVID subside first before we bring in the crowds. Way too early for this. Interesting stuff. And this is from uh, this is the this is just the Facebook page for the Richmond Night Market. But it's very typical in terms of the way people feel around Metro Vancouver about these kinds of events. And and you were talking about the BC Lions a few moments ago. They're hoping to have on Thursday the nineteenth of August at least thirteen thousand people at BC Place for their home opener against the Edmonton Elks. Anyway, um, the uh, th- those. What well, do you think the Lions are going to require a vaccine passport? I think it's something that they might be willing to consider. Uh, one of the keys to the exercise with the CFL is that they have a significantly older fan base than other sports. Uh, you mm-hmm. have a lot of people over the age of 55 who have been diehard BC Lions fans. They're more likely to have their two shots already when we get to August. So that'll be an interesting case study as how you do this. If you have a bunch of people who have already been vaccinated uh, twice, uh, it might be ready to have them all in the same place and you start to figure out what to do with the masks. Now, uh, one of the problems that we've seen in places that have taken the mask mandate off early is that they're going back to it. Los Angeles County mm-hmm. is now, as of today, going back to the mask mandate. They were without it for about a month, and they said, well, right. we have a problem. There's people who haven't been vaccinated. We haven't been as quick as we expected, and we have more cases of the Delta variant, so we're going back into this. And it's been very, very bad politically because there's nothing worse for anybody who's been governed to be told that everything is fine and then go back to the same rules four weeks later. So I think Mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons for the federal government and the BC government to say we're going to do this very slowly. They don't want to open the border. And then a month later, cases start to climb and they go, well, we're going back to life how it was in May. Interesting. So now the uh, current regime of border restrictions and closures, Mario, expires in just a few days on the 21st of July. Are you expecting that to be extended by at least another 30 days, looking at possibly a mid to late August border reopening? Well, I think it's definitely tied uh, to the election call. Uh, We have a situation right now where there's an expectation that the federal election will happen within the next few weeks. Uh, You don't want to call the election when the border is closed. So I think it'll be closely tied to this. There will be a moment when they'll say, "Okay, we will allow Americans or anybody else who wants to cross the border with these circumstances to come in here and enjoy and spend money. And by the way, we need a new mandate in six weeks. (laughs) I think that is the way it is going to go. Okay. All right. Now, a last question to you. I lost five bucks on England last weekend. How much did you make on Italy? Because you predicted right here on this program they were going to clean England's clock. Well, I thought it was going to be decided in the first 90 minutes. You know, I didn't expect it to go into overtime. Uh, I have a good friend who I played soccer with here in Canada. He's now moved back to Malaysia. And he sent me the, the most quirky text in the morning. And he said, I woke up early because I think England is going to lose in penalty kicks. And I just told him later, go buy a lottery ticket right now. No kidding. That was great fun. Uh, Mario, always a pleasure. So we do appreciate uh, the information you're providing. And and it's wonderful on the weekends to just take a few moments and take the pulse of British Columbians. Thank you very much for this, as always. My pleasure, Sterling. Anytime. And uh, we're joined now from the BC Tourism Industry Association by its chairman, Vivek Sharma, who is also the CEO of the Fairmont Hot Springs Resort. Vivek, good morning and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, we had a very interesting conversation with Mario Canseco about British Columbian, individual British Columbia attitudes towards the reopening of the border. And unlike 
the BC tourism industry, Vivek. The typical British Columbian is very conservative. Uh, roughly three out of four of us are very okay with the slow progress of the border reopening. Unlike the hospitality industry, not only here in BC, but across the country, very frustrated with the government of Canada for its lack of a plan. And I'm looking at your website, which says we need a plan. And uh, you've got a write your MP campaign going on and open the U.S.-Canada border uh, campaign. And in fact, if you go to the website, the border has been closed for one year, 123 days, one hour and 43 minutes. And that's nuts, according to your association. Tell us about the pressure you're trying to bring to bear on the federal government. So let me just rephrase this, that we're not trying to exert pressure. We are advocating for doing the right thing. And we understand the apprehension of the average resident. Uh, And one of the things we are working with the government is educating our communities as to how tourism has practiced safety, uh, not just before the pandemic, but even prior to that in making sure we keep our communities safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been advocating for a safe reopening of the borders. Um, and what the premier announced last week of potentially allowing fully vaccinated Americans entry into Canada from next month, uh, those are the kind of things we are, we've been advocating, uh, you know, to make sure that we do what we do safely, but also follow some international trends where countries mm-hmm. have uh, opened up borders um, and, and managed that through the vaccination process. So now we have, of course, the current regime of the border closure expiring in just a couple of days, Vivek, on the 21st of July. Are you expecting pretty much an automatic 30-day extension and looking at realistically uh, opening the border to the kinds of considerations you're talking about in a month? Or would you like to see that start this week? I think it's too late for it to start this week. That, that ship has sailed. Uh, however, the premier has raised uh, our confidence levels uh, by saying that at some point in August, uh, those borders will be opened. Uh, whether the extension on, at, in 20, on the 21st of July is for another 30 days, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we are, we are moving in the right direction. So talk to us a little bit about staffing issues, Vivek. This is, I think it's a surprise to many, given the fact that uh, that, that uh, there, there were so many jobs that have, have gone wanting, and now we're starting to see uh, reopening of some uh, facilities and some, uh, and we're having already hearing about difficulties rehiring people who may have moved on. What can you tell us about that issue uh, for your members? The the issue of staffing, uh, you know, honestly, it's not a surprise. Even before the pandemic, uh, staffing challenges for our members was one of the biggest things that we were advocating for um, to have a more comprehensive workforce strategy in the hospitality and tourism industry. Uh, right after the pandemic, when, you know, so many of our tour operators, businesses were shut down and staff were laid off, we knew that there was a migration happening. We knew... Mm-hmm that there were other areas um, in the economy where there was a staffing need and people were migrating towards that. And we've been talking about that and, and coming up with a plan, trying to come up with a plan as to how do we mitigate that. Uh, and yes, our, our operators, our members are struggling across the length and breadth of the province. doesn't matter which facet of uh, hospitality and tourism they operate in. Staffing continues to be um, a critical challenge that our industry is facing right now. 
I would imagine it's complicated by the fact that there's no roadmap. We, 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 you can't say, well, you know, by August the 8th, we'll be, uh, we'll be open to full dining and 50% room capacity. Uh, you don't know that yet, and that's uh, complicating the restaffing process, isn't it? Um, it is not. I mean, you know, to be fair, the, the reopening plan that was launched six weeks back or so by a province, you know, the phased plan, Sure, that yeah. does lay down some markers that we had been advocating for to make sure that there are markers in the ground. And right now we are in phase three. There is a plan for phase four as of 7th of September. So, so those, those markers are there now. However, uh, the, the, one of the reasons that is complicating the staffing issue right now is, you know, it goes back to the movement of people across the country and across the world. Uh, at this time of the year, there is generally a huge amount of international students and young workers who are on these working holiday visas and and they're enjoying the beauty that our province offers but also at the same time um, taking up a job uh, sure. and helping our tourism up we don't have that workforce right now indeed uh, uh, even a lot of the students from you know other parts of the country that generally come to bc in the summers that is fairly minimized as well right now so I'm looking at the letter, the open letter to the MP that you provide at openuscanadaborder.ca, uh, and you ask you in, in the form letter that you the, you ask your people to, to write in your name and address and an email, and then you say, as a constituent, I'm asking you to support urgent action to open the Canada-U.S. border with vaccination rates rising in Canada and the states in case numbers falling. We must return to normal border activity. Our Canadian economy depends on the border being open and the closure for 15 months has been long and punishing please let me know you support the efforts to commit to a plan to open the border this is a letter that you're asking your members and any person to send to their mp what are you hearing by way of feedback from people who have sent these form letters to members of parliament and received a reply are mps on side vivek uh, it will be uh, difficult for me to uh, to say in terms of actual statistics as to what have we heard back from the MPs. Uh, however, the the announcement from the premier last week uh, is a proof of the advocacy efforts that you know our organization, our sister organizations and partner organizations in the province and federally have been doing over the past six months about the reopening plan of the U.S. border specifically. So, so that announcement is, is a direct result of the advocacy efforts of all of these uh, organizations, including ours. Ah, okay. Uh, and uh, so is the, the, the combination of United States pressure, because there are a lot of legislators down there, especially in border states that are leaning on Ottawa. The White House is involved to some extent. Are you confident that before Labor Day, we may have a U.S.-Canada border reopening. That gives you lots of wriggle room, and it's not very helpful for the tourist season, but would Labor Day be a, 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 a date that you're comfortable with? We are cautiously optimistic. Um, it will be hard for us to put a finger as to whether it will open on the 15th of August, 20th of August, 10th of August. Sure. We, we don't know the inner workings of that, but we are cautiously optimistic that if the trend of the vaccination uh, case numbers, hospitalizations, uh, both north and south of the border, if it continues in this manner, then um, we, we are confident that in the very near future, uh, we will see the U.S. border open to fully vaccinated travelers.
Indeed. Vivek Sharma, thank you this for this, sir. We appreciate your time on a Sunday morning. Good to get caught up with the people in the hospitality industry. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You have a great day. Producer Ben Dooley and I came across this story and this headline a few days ago and decided, well, we better do it. The headline, Pandemic Accelerates Exodus from City to Suburbia. With newfound work, flexibility, urbanites in British Columbia appear to be headed for greener pastures. We dove into the story and found this. In a recent survey, Insights West found younger homeowners in Metro Vancouver more inclined to sell and leave for greener pastures. Joining us with more on his findings is the president of Insights West. A pleasure to welcome Steve Mossop to the program. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you with us. This is a very interesting trend. It's not brand new. We've seen it developing since work from home started well over a year ago, but it appears to have, uh, it's more than just a foothold, Steve. It's, it's becoming something. Tell us more about what you found, particularly among younger people in, in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver. It really is quite shocking when you look at some of the numbers and the poll focused on homeowners and the impact of the pandemic on their behaviors, whether it be downsizing or cashing out and moving to a different province or country. So we wanted to quantify and put some numbers around that. And we looked at it in in several different ways. We said, if you're a homeowner, which of the following things are you considering doing in the next two years? And I'll go through the list. So there's about 10% who are thinking of downsizing into something smaller. And that tends Mm -hmm. to be focused on the 18 to 34s. They want to downsize, save some money in, in, in their situation. We've got another 8% who want to move to another city in Metro Vancouver, another 5% saying they'd move to the Fraser Valley, uh, 11% moving somewhere else in BC, uh, and even 9% saying they would move to another country. So when you add all those up, it's about uh, 25% of homeowners that, are, that have all these things running through their mind in terms of opportunities of what they would do to cash out on the high prices here in Metro Van and having a better lifestyle elsewhere. Indeed. Now, is this also, because you talked about moving to other communities in Metro Vancouver, Steve, so as we zoom in on the specifics of the survey, uh, I'm taking it then that you're talking about people, younger homeowners particularly, in the city of Vancouver who are uh, beset upon by a number of factors, not the least of which is increasing taxes. Many Canadian cities during the pandemic went to zero tax increases, not the city of Vancouver. Talk to us about the reasons people are saying, I'm out of here. I got to go. I got to go somewhere else. It's really a difference in lifestyle. And in some cases, cashing out. If you look at older residents, 55 plus, there's uh, quite a movement to considering cashing out and traveling cashing out on renting or cashing out on retiring. Uh, The young people, it's really about saving money and having a better lifestyle, but also having the ability to manage their their work-life balance in a way, because, you know, we still have this pandemic after effect of people having the ability to work at home. That trend is not going away. About half the workers who are currently working from home say that the, the return to work will be some kind of a hybrid model. So, you know, if you're living in North Vancouver, you could just as easily go move to Salmon Arm and cash out on the house prices there, here and set up your home office in Salmon Arm. So those are the kinds of stats that are really driving uh, this big movement. 
It's interesting, too, because just quite coincidentally on the program today, Steve, we've had a number of guests of looking at the future of work from a series of different angles. But the conclusion, interesting, you, you look for common denominators in, in these uh, conversations, and everyone agrees with the finding that you've just articulated. The fact is that going forward, uh, for many particularly younger workers, the hybrid model is the desired model. That is that is to say, they, they recognize that some physical attachment to the organization is essential, particularly from the organization's point of view. But from them, the employee, the the freedom to uh, to ha- have the flexible hours a- and working environment that home provides is the balance that they need uh, as going forward, and that's really changing the workplace probably permanently. Don't you think? I think so. And, and here's a shocking statistic, and we haven't released this yet. So this data is brand new, just collected. I'm sharing it uh, with you today. But the one that jumped out at me is this: thirty percent of people say that if their employer doesn't let them continue their lifestyle balance of working from home in some capacity, they will quit their job and they will right. find something else. And that's a not that's, a small number. It's that's a right. massive number. And that's the, what the Globe and Mail a couple of days ago, Steve, referred to as the, uh, as the great uh, resignation. Uh, yeah. They did a story on younger workers, uh, millennials and G- Gen Zs, uh, and they talked about them b- being the biggest players in this new phenomenon called the Great Resignation. To that, and you're quite right. People are uh, really dug in on this, aren't they? They really are. And to see a number that high, you know, typically in a given year, we see single digits in terms of movement in the labor market. But when you have uh, that number considering it, it, it really becomes a bit overwhelming as an employer to look at the impact in the workplace. And what percentage, again, were you able to share with us this morning of people quite willing to, well, if this isn't the way it's going to be for me, then I'm out of here? So we have about 40% of British Columbians that have worked at home since the pandemic began because yes. lots of jobs you know, won't, won't enable that. But 40% is a pretty big number. And of mm-hmm. that 40%, 30% say that they are willing to quit their job if their employer isn't flexible and giving them that work-life balance and, and the ability to work from home. Right. Right. Well, you're an employer. Look at this from the flip the coin for a few moments, Steve, and take a look at it from from the organizational point. And, and, uh, there are those workers, of course, who really thrive on the workplace environment and who can't wait to get back. But from an employer perspective and a productivity management perspective, uh, they want some kind of ability to to be able to. And I'm not the word is control, and I, and I'm not meaning it in a power control sort of way, but to be able to keep tabs on what everybody's up to. And so the hybrid model, I think, is probably going to be the, the compromise that will work for, 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 for most. And uh, another guest on the program this morning talked about people, again, further to your point moments ago, Steve, about people reskilling. People, young people, again, particularly, 57% of the people they talk to are keen to reskill. If this doesn't work out, they are flexible and confident in themselves enough that they'll move on and find work elsewhere. Interesting it is, stuff, It is huh? exactly that. And there's a, I think what's also driving that, we've seen the numbers on the savings that people have accumulated over the pandemic. So there's this bit of financial cushion that even young people have, the 18 to 34s that were, you know, collecting a, a government subsidy over that time, are many of them, I'd say about 30% are better off than what they were pre-pandemic. So that cushion gives them that confidence and the ability to, 
to put it out there and say, hey, you know what, I don't have to depend on my job. I can move. I can take a risk. I can try something different. And that, uh, I would imagine, for some employers, is pretty scary finding. And I'm, I'm sure some of them are just sitting here going, oh, brother, there goes my workforce. Oh, now what am I going to do? Exactly. I think it is a, a, fair, a scary number. It also has implications for places like downtown, vibrancy of downtown, and, sure. and the buildings and landlords and commercial real estate. So what happens when all of a sudden we don't need 20% of the space that we, that we had pre-pandemic? What, what happens mm-hmm. to that space? So it's, Indeed. it's a wide, wide-ranging implications that we'll see for years to come, I think. Well, indeed, because a lot of companies and organizations are simply going to, quite happily in many cases, rethink the amount of space that they occupy, uh, especially if half the, half the workforce is at any given time not there. Well, then they only need half the space that they originally had. So a lot of changes coming up. I wanted to talk about, uh, I'm going to uh, take a break here, Steve, but uh, before we do, because when we come back from the break, I want to talk about your BC government report card from a few weeks ago. But before the break, and again, City of Vancouver and taxes, talk to us about what young people, young homeowners or would-be homeowners in Vancouver told you about local municipal taxes. Uh, local municipal taxes are a big factor that's driving the, the migration too. Uh, you know, people are tired of, of seeing increases in property taxes, especially in the city of Vancouver, especially. Um, and that, I don't have the number right in front of me, but I remember as a, a big percentage of as driving some of the reasons that people are looking to move to the outside. Well, indeed, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about some Canadian cities uh, moving to a 0% tax increase model uh, during the pandemic. But of course, here in Vancouver, uh, they, I'm looking for the number as well, but I think the number was uh, 7% one year uh, and 6% the next. And now they're talking about 9% next year. This is, this is punishing uh, for especially uh, uh, trying to just uh, own a home and pay for that in Vancouver, isn't it? In, in the most expensive city in the world or one of the most expensive expensive and then then you layer in uh, the small irritants like uh, parking taxes for your vehicle on the street that's over and above the property taxes so the you know our incomes are not going up anywhere near as fast as the tax rate in in this local area so it's uh, that's definitely a driving factor our guest is Steve Mossop, the president of Insights West. And just about a month or so ago, they published the latest version of the Government of British Columbia report card, and in which the uh, the finding, Steve, was uh, the BC NDP, uh, the, the approval ratings, uh, they have dropped a little bit. They still enjoy uh, the... Uh, approval of the majority of citizens in terms of voting, uh, uh, but they... The premier, Dr. Henry's doing great, but the premier started to slide a little as other non-COVID management issues come to the fore, housing, crime, the opioid crisis. And since the publication of this report, he's also taking some flack in terms of forest uh, management. So tell us a little bit more about the findings uh, on and, and, the, and the why the, the uh, I suppose, predictable decrease in popularity for Mr. Horgan. Well, over the past uh, 18 months, uh, the surge in popularity of the NDP and John Horgan's leadership have really been quite astounding. And Mm. we've seen that uh, in other jurisdictions across Canada, where at the beginning of the pandemic, as the government formulated their response, uh, public approval ratings and support levels for those governments uh, rose to to extremely high levels. So here's a number for you. We had uh, one point in time at the peak of the pandemic. 68% 68% of British Columbians approved of John Horgan's leadership and his, and his performance, which mm. I've never seen in the history of polling for the last 30 years. 
uh, any sitting government or leader have a number that high. Right. Uh, it's since gone down to 50%, so it has dropped, but it's still rare in the province of BC that we would have 50% supporting the leadership uh, abilities of any sitting premier. Sure is. So, and part of the reason for that drop is, as you pointed out, uh, COVID-19 has dominated the agenda. If, you, if we ask British Columbians, what's the most important issue facing the province today? COVID, by far, has been number one until just a month ago, where it dropped in the second place. It went from 32% to 18%. And in its place is back at the, you know, about five years ago, housing prices and affordability uh, has been the number one issue with, uh, with the exception of the COVID uh, phase in the past year. Interesting. So uh, now that we are, and we're certainly not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, Steve, but we are on the file. More and more of us are getting the double shots and more and more of us are in a position to be fully vaccinated and in a, in, in a, and ready to move on. We're not yet there, but uh, there it's getting closer. And I guess as we start to uh, look to the future, uh, what about the economy in terms of uh, the findings and the report card about the the government and its management of all things British Columbian, what are you hearing about the economy? The economy's held really quite steady over the past 18 months. It's around the 10% mark. So if you ask British Columbians what's the number one issue, economy is mentioned by 10%. But other issues have crept into play here. So the opioid crisis made its appearance last year. It's now 8%. We've got crime and public safety that was virtually zero the last several years. And then the recent, uh, you know, spree that we've seen in shootings in Metro Vancouver have All brought the gang that to, stuff, the, yeah. to the forefront. We've got mm-hmm. climate change, which has also resurfaced. We've got homelessness. We've got uh, forestry and logging practices, declining salmon stocks. So all these things that have been buried and kind of tucked away while COVID has dominated the headlines have now come to uh, really bump COVID out of its place. And the, the list of issues that uh, John Horkin has to deal with is really quite lengthy compared to what it has been. Sure. Now, on the other side of the House, uh, you have the opposition uh, leaderless at the moment after a disastrous performance in the last election. What are uh, British Columbians saying about the uh, performance of uh, Shirley Bond, the interim leader, and the B.C. Liberals these days? Well, there's not a whole lot of hope for the Liberals uh, now or in the near to medium term. We've got B.C. Liberal leader Bond's approval rating at 25 percent, which is actually five points lower than the reading on Wilkinson at this point in time last year. Hmm. Uh, maybe the bright spot is first to know at 35%, and that's higher than the previous leader. And also, if you look at the, the vote and how it's split today, the Greens have picked up substantial number of votes and now account for about 19% of, of voter preferences if an election were held tomorrow. Interesting. Despite the gong show going on at their national headquarters, 30 seconds here, Steve, uh, leave the, save the good news, the best news for last. How's Dr. Bonnie doing in the approval department? We love Dr. Bonnie, and, and she has had sky-high approval ratings from day one of the pandemic at 79% approval. That's 41% who say they strongly approve, and it's only dropped to 73 so she's lost a couple of points. But again, relative to, you know, we have a reading on Justin Trudeau, who went from 67 to 46. We've mm-hmm. got ratings of uh, your local mayor at 33%. So Dr. Bonnie is still at the top of the charts. We, we just love her. Absolutely. She is indeed top of the charts. Interesting conversation, Steve. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Fascinating stuff. We do appreciate it very much. Well, thank you very much.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.